I'm going to continue our study today on the subject of patience. We're calling it the waiting game. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd love for you to find 1 Samuel 13. We'll read it in just a moment. 1 Samuel 13. I think if you picked up one of the Bibles in the back, it'll be page 161. In thinking of the subject of patience, I wanted to share with you a quote. I I shared it with you last week. So John Piper has said this about patience. Patience is a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of of obedience. So we're waiting and we're walking in in these places, in these paces that are unplanned. Impatience is what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. The waiting game, we've been digging into this subject of patience and if you live long enough, there will be some intended path that you were you're headed down that will be blocked. If you live long enough, there will be some timetable that you were on that will be delayed. And in the middle of that, you will have to wait. And that's what we've been talking, waiting on the Lord. What does that look like? I've asked uh, Daniel Sproul to come and read, if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel 13. I've asked him to read the first several verses of that passage. Chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash, to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes, and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? 
And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Thank you, Daniel. Sometimes waiting becomes this intense exercise. I read a lot of books every year. Very few of those books actually move me to respond like emotionally in tears. That's why one of the books I read last year stands out in my mind so much. So the book, the title is Defiant. And the subtitle is The POWs Who Endured Vietnam's Most Infamous Prison, The Women Who Fought for Them, and The One Who Never Returned. I was reading that book. During the Vietnam, there were about 11 POWs that were singled out for their loyalty to their country. And some of these POWs were in these camps like six or seven years. Most of those six or seven years was spent getting brutally interrogated and also in solitary confinement. So, I mean, they were being pressed for some sort of intelligence or some sort of statement that could be used as propaganda. They they banished them even to this certain awful cell away from the Hanoi Hilton to a place they called Alcatraz. So every one of those 11 were, like, impacted, you can imagine, even physically impacted in several ways. One, uh, One died, never came back. I was reading of these, what, what struck me with their lives is how much, I mean, how much waiting, I mean, it's a story of triumph and endurance that they made it, but how much waiting they must have had in those six or seven years. And then what was, what really stood out in the story that I can't get it out of my mind, even probably 16 months after I've read the book, was the fact that there were women in the United States that were pursuing the government, pursuing every single angle to try to get these men freed, to try to get them treated humanely, to try to get messages to them. And they were waiting. And then you start reading about the kids that were, you know, three when their dad was captured and now they're nine and ten. And you can imagine how moving it was. I, I remember even like the anxiety building in my own heart of like, we've got to get these guys free. And I knew the end of the story that they are going to be freed and they're going to come back to the States. But there's this anticipation because the waiting became so intense and it was such a relief when they were able to get home. I think, I I pray, like none of us would ever have to go through anything like that. And I don't mean to minimize any suffering there. While that kind of intense waiting may seem far from us, anything we've experienced in our lifetime, what I do know is that I'm probably looking out on lots of people who have had some experience where it wasn't just normal waiting, it was intense waiting. See, there, I mean, there are going to be millions of things in life in which waiting on the Lord's going to be the right response. There's going to be millions of those things. 
But I do think there's going to be a few seasons where you walk through those seasons and it just is unusually hard because there's going to be the potential for something you could gain and it's not happening and it, it seems like this is too great to miss and I can't believe I'm missing it. Or maybe there's such high hopes that you want fulfilled and it just is too hard to wait. Or maybe there are some of your worst fears that seem to be coming true and it's like, I, I can't believe this is what I always dreaded and now it's happening. Or maybe there is this great loss that it seems like you are on this headlong encounter with and you just can't get off this train of taking you to the place of, of deep, deep loss and yet you're waiting for something to change. Or maybe there's a hurt that you're enduring and it seems to be lasting for longer and longer. Or maybe the pressure is becoming too strong. Something needs to happen. Something has to change. All lots of things you're going to wait on the Lord for, but some of those make it intense. And that's what I want to look at today. I want us to remember this. When waiting gets intense, we are in danger of making a decision to turn away from God. If you get anything from today. When waiting becomes intense, when it's like the, the heat gets turned up in your life, and what's in that pot is going to boil and it's going to boil up, when that happens, we are in danger of making a decision to turn away from God. We saw such a positive example last week in the life of Joseph of what it was in intense waiting to turn to God. But I want us to look at a, another passage that Daniel just read and look at it a little bit more in depth. So what the Bible never does is the Bible never sanitizes the stories where, where it seems like, it, like the real characters didn't have any flaws and, and no one ever struggled with anything. The Bible just kind of presents it all. So you're going to read stories about Saul that are very unflattering. You're going to read stories of David that are very unflattering. And the Bible says, here it is. There's only one perfect person that ever lived, and that's Jesus Christ. But everybody else, like it, it was, it's not easy. People made mistakes. I if we can live, I, I hope you still have 1 Samuel 13 open. If we can live in that world for just a, a little bit here, what we'll sense is Israel's enemy, and at that particular time, the, the Philistines had been provoked. And both armies were mobilizing. But here's the challenge. The Philistines were the superpower of the era, and, and, and Israel was not. So one army is mobilizing and, and they are mobilizing in a big way and Israel is beginning to look like how might we even survive this conflict? They faced real challenge. I think sometimes war and battles seem more like a video game. But I think if we were transported to Mosul right now, Iraq, it would not seem like a video game where terrorists are, are on this street and in this part of the city. You got people fighting to move them out. And it's tribal warfare at its worst. And there you're, there's your mom and your dad. Your, there's your kids. There's your, your niece, your nephew. There's your grandparents. And you're wondering, like, are we going to survive if, we, if our army doesn't come through for us? I mean, I, I feel like we need to understand that to fully appreciate this particular kind of situation. Because in verse 5 it says, the Philistines seemed like they were coming like the, the sand on the seashore with their 30,000 chariots and their 6,000 horsemen. You know, what's interesting is that 
the Philistines being compared to like sand on the seashore, that's a description of normally like the Israelites. They were the ones, the, the children of Abraham were going to be the, like, like sand on the seashore. But now it seems like it's all turned, all reversed. And they're facing this army that seems like this is unbelievable. We'll never survive. Again, it's not a video game. So in verse 6, we start reading their emotions. They saw that they were in tr- trouble and they, they were hard-pressed. They see it. They see what's happening in their, own, in their own area. And that leads them in verse 6 and verse 7 where they're deserting and they're fleeing and they're hiding. I think we, we would have been in this as well. So there's this plan for God's people. And you get a, a little bit of an allusion to it in verse 8. It seems like there's this appointed time that Samuel, who the prophet, has told Saul the king, like, I'm going to come in seven days. And we're going to offer a sacrifice then. Here's the plan. Here's the play. Let's run the play as called. I'm coming in seven days. And then we'll sacrifice. It seems like, that, that seemed like good advice for lots of people. I would imagine that we, we pray, we seek the Lord old saying is like there's no atheists in foxholes. So I, I think Samuel's saying, I'm going to come. I'm, I'm the only one authorized. But, but Samuel didn't come. And it says in verse 8, Samuel didn't come to Gilgal at that time and the people were scattering from Saul. So I think we need to feel some of the fear that, that Saul is living under. Like, what are you going to do? Your, your army is leaving. Your army is deserting. And what are you going to do, Saul? You're the king. What's leadership going to look like? You're, you're a fairly new king. What is it going to look like for you to lead your people? Saul's like watching. I mean, this is the days before, before text. So it's not like he can send like, where are you, man? I'm, I'm you know, it's getting kind of desperate here. And, and Samuel replies, I'm on my way. I'll be there in, you know, in a day or two. I mean, this is not that time. So he has no idea. And maybe, maybe, who, who knows what's all going through Saul's heart, but we get a glimpse into it where he says, I can't wait any longer. In verse 8 and verse 9, I'll sacrifice the offerings. And this is one of those moments where it's ironic, it's humorous. We can all, we've all probably been there. At the very moment, the fire dies down from the sacrifice. It's all finished. At that very moment, Samuel comes. And he would have the feeling, I imagine Saul had the feeling much like you and I would have, like, right then. Like you can imagine when he sees him on the horizon, when you know you've been caught, when you know, like there's about to be a situation here, you know, when you know you're going to get confronted with something and you know you messed up. We get a look into into what, what Saul's thinking in verse 11. Samuel says, what have you done? Saul says, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come when, when you were supposed to, although he really did, but, but I didn't see you coming, then I had, I had to just go ahead and I went ahead and offered the, the burnt offering. I, I, I realized I hadn't sought the favor of the Lord. Maybe this would help and I just forced myself. And there were some constant, costly consequences to all of this. I go back to it again. Like when... When waiting gets intense, we're in danger of making a decision to turn away from God. And this must have seemed like such a small thing to Saul. I mean, I get, a, a person's got to do what a person's got to do. I had to do this. I really didn't have a choice. It's just one decision. 
But I think, I mean, a whole direction start with one decision. Like, so he begins to walk down this path. And what we'll see in the life of Saul, if you read through the rest of 1 Samuel, is he makes one decision like this after another to turn away from God and, and to go his own way. This decision became a pattern. So I, I hope you see some of what's going on in the story. What I would rather you do, even do a higher level here is I like for us to see ourselves in this story. You ever had to wait on anything? You ever had to wait on something that really meant a lot to you? Have you ever had to wait so much to the point where like the urgency increased? And you're tempted to act impatiently? You know, there's lots of things in life, and we'll talk about these maybe, maybe next week where we don't even have the choice to do anything about it. We're, we're left waiting. But there's sometimes where we have the opportunity where we can act on our impatience. This is exactly what Saul could do. He could act on his impatience. And he's tempted. In some ways, it's hard. It's actually, it's hard not to think we would have some of the rationalizations that Saul had. Can you imagine? Let's let's be Saul for a moment. Like, did we really hear what Samuel said? I mean, maybe, was it seven or was it six days? Maybe he meant six. Maybe there's a time change that we didn't factor in. Maybe, Maybe there's a reason, maybe... Maybe he was delayed and he really meant to come, but he couldn't. I mean, you can begin to think through all the rationalizations that you might have. Are we sure about this? Did God really say? Maybe we're tempted in some ways to pursue something that we're tired of waiting on. And we know. We know it's clearly sinful. There really isn't an excuse or justification for it, but let me tell you how my heart works. Rarely do I sin saying, I call heaven and earth to witness me. I'm going to do this on my own against you, God. Rarely do my sins ever feel like that. Normally they feel like I've got an excuse, you know, I just got tired of it. You know, it seemed like maybe I could have and yeah, we all make mistakes and everybody else was and wasn't I. And I mean, that's the way it feels in my heart. Not like I'm going, just watch me disobey you, God. It never feels like that. It's much more subtle. We get weary of waiting. And so a little dishonesty, maybe it doesn't matter so much. Hey, everybody's dishonest. It's a little white lie. Didn't hurt anything. And actually, kind of, it's my turn anyway. I'm entitled to this. Or, or maybe it's, it's a little compromise. So often, I mean, for Saul, I think fear was largely driving it. And so maybe fear is driving the fear of not being accepted, the fear of not fitting in. So a little compromise, isn't that just kind of part of living in the world? Everyone does it. It's only one night. It's only one choice. It's only one drink. And maybe no one will see. It's only one. And yet we know, we know what, what things are being opened up in our heart by doing this. Maybe we're just tired of waiting. I remember seeing a t-shirt one time that says, good things come to those who wait, but only those things left by those who hustle. That sounds, I'll use that. Why do I need to wait? I'm going to hustle here and make something happen. That's the way it normally feels in my heart. But then you go to verse 13 and it just gets really, really clear. 
So this is what Samuel says in verse 13. You had not kept the command of the Lord your God. It could not be more clear. So what, whatever rationalizations Saul had, or you have, or I have, they just don't, don't withhold sometimes the scrutiny of this, this, is what's, this is what's clear, Saul. You are not a person after God's heart. It's a little embarrassing to try to convince ourselves that we're devoted to God when we can't think of barely any sacrifice we'd ever make for him. Are we really going to say, I'm devoted to God, when there's not even a small thing that we do because, only because he said to do it? Or something we would avoid simply because he said, don't do it. Can, can, we, can we honestly convince ourselves and, and can we be, op- maybe we're opening a door to our heart for many things to come through later. Maybe, maybe it's like, ah, I think I'll just make this one decision and you begin to open up that path and it begins to get wider and wider and easier and easier to walk further and further down that path because of one decision, one decision to say, I think I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. I think there's more to this story. It's just interesting the language that Saul used, especially in verse 12. So Saul is going to camouflage the blatant disobedience by saying, well, I needed to, I needed to ask the favor of the Lord. That's why I did it. I mean, you can imagine him, every brain cell is firing, trying to make up an excuse for why he just did what he was clearly told not to do. He's saying, oh, I, uh, I, I needed to ask for the Lord's help. That's it. Yeah. And, I, and this is, so that's why I offered the sacrifice. I forced myself. I didn't want to, but I forced myself to do it. Often we use a little God talk to camouflage our impatience. You know, our ambitions are somewhat of a mess. I mean, at times they're mixed. We really want God to do his thing, and we really want our thing done too. And sometimes it's hard, like it just gets interwoven, and it's hard to pull those apart. And we just begin to think, as we talk about our own ambition, we begin to say, well, I think this is what God would want, and it begins to be all tied up, and we have a hard time even sorting it out. There's times in ministry where I feel like I'm doing very little for God. And there's times where I want, uh, I want the church or ministry to surge forward and I'm just a little impatient for it. And I have this ambition to accomplish more, more than I am accomplishing. And I want to see relationships change. And I want to see someone change. I want to see their heart changed. And I begin to be filled not with peace, but with impatience. Like it's got to happen. I'm going to make it happen. God, I'm tired of waiting. We're just going to do this. We're going to do that. Paul, or, or Saul here like sprinkles the religious formalities on it. But there's sometimes where we're praying and it's more praying like, God, would you let my will be done? It's not really your will be done. God, I really like for this to be worked out. Amen. Without ever submitting that to the Lord. Even in a couple chapters, Samuel will remind Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. That's wonderful you go through a religious formality. What's going on in your heart? I think we can admit there are times where impatience is a part of, part of our heart. There are honestly times where I don't know exactly, is this, is this really waiting on the Lord? Or should I move forward? I mean, God gave us a brain. 
God told us to, you know, live out our faith. How, how do we sort through, is this, am I being impatient when I actually, or, or, or should I be waiting on the Lord? How do we sort through all of that? I want to I give us some questions here. There's nothing magical about the questions, but, but they help me discern in my heart, like, what's going on here? Should I, should I act like, because I can't just sit around doing nothing, or is this actually a sign of impatience? So here's one question you can ask yourself. Have I prayed about this at all? Have I prayed about this at all? And I mean, not, not the prayer like, you know, I, I want my will to be done, but prayer has a way of changing my heart to say, Lord, your will be done. So in this thing in front of me where I'm saying, I really want the, the timetable to pick up. I want the detour to be kind of over and I want, to, I want to move forward. And maybe it's even a good thing that you could see move. Have I, have, I, have I taken this to the Lord? Have I prayed about this at all? Maybe another question we could ask is this, can I see this in any way as not submitting to God? Or could I see this in some ways as being disobedient to God? Sometimes I think we have to ask, if my, is my next, next action, if I were standing before the Lord, would I say, Lord, this one's for you. This is for you. May you be glorified by this. I want you to reign supreme. I want you to be seen as big and powerful. And so you begin to diagnose and say, Lord, what's going on in my heart? Like, could I honestly say, to you be glory? Or is this, nah, I don't think I can, I don't think I can move forward in this way saying, God, you be glorified by this. Maybe one more question would be this. Would I be on the defensive? If a godly friend were to ask uncomfortable questions about what I want to pursue. So let's say this godly friend, I hope you have them. I know I do. And they begin to ask you like, what do you really want here, Curtis? What are you afraid of? Are, Are you depending on the Lord? Maybe they begin to unpack your words and say, this is what I'm hearing. And if you were to say, oh, I don't even want to have that conversation. Because I know as soon as I ask them, they're going to be them. And they're going to say, what about this? What about this? What about that? And then I'm going to get deterred. And I'm not going to be able to do what I really want to do. So I'm just not even going to ask them. I'm going to go ahead and do what I want to do. I find whenever I, whenever I want to hit like the bypass button from a godly friend that I know loves me, loves the Lord, wants what's best for me. I generally know if I want to hit that button, there's something in my heart that I haven't dealt with. There's something that I want more than I, I may want what, more than what God wants for me. I think these questions, I mean, I say all this to make sure we feel the caution because when waiting gets intense, we're in danger. We're in danger of making a decision to turn away from God and even convince ourselves, no, I'm kind of trying to do what God wants. But what if it doesn't have to be that way? What if when waiting got intense, we, we made a decision to turn to God instead of away from him? What if when we began to feel the, the heat of waiting, 
we found God giving grace to us. And we were able to make a decision to not turn away from him, but instead turn to him. What would that look like? What if we began in our intense moments of waiting to have a a stronger grip on his character, have a stronger grip on his goodness? We sing a song here fairly regularly. His plan is still to prosper. He's not forgotten us. What if we got a stronger grip on that even as the waiting got intense? He said, he is not against me, he's for me. What if we got a stronger grip on his wisdom? Much like Joseph who could say, you know, God was at work here. God was wise. God knew what he was doing. There was a much bigger plan going on. I wonder if Saul could see God's goodness. I wonder if Saul could have seen, you know, God's wise. I don't know what's going on with Samuel. I don't know why I've had to wait this long. I don't know why my army's deserting. I don't know why I'm so fearful inside. I don't know why I need to have this image where I've got to look big and got to look tough and got to look strong, but, but I know God is wise. I wonder if he could see, get a glimpse into that God had more plans for this kingdom than just saw in this one encounter. God was working out plans for this kingdom to ultimately bring about King Jesus. God has a plan for his people. God was not going to let them get wiped out. I wonder if we would see his goodness and we would submit to his wisdom, take our will and submit it to his. I wonder if we would trust in his power. You do know this, right? God is not just a a good God with lots of good intentions. But he's a powerful God. So when it says in Romans 8.28, he works all things together for good. He works. So there's this that seems awful, and there's this that seems awful, and there's this and that, and he begins to know. He knows how to place that all in a line, and he begins to place it in a line for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we may say, that is not good, and that is not good, and I don't like that, and I don't like that, and I don't like that. But God begins to put that all together in a plan, and he's working things out for our good because he is sovereign and powerful enough to do that. So we have to wait on him. What, what does, I mean, frankly, what does waiting on the Lord look like? Does that mean you sit around a lot? Does it look like, well, I just go to church more? What, what is waiting? Is it, is it passive? Is it inactivity? Is it like, like well, I don't want to do the wrong thing, so I'm not going to do anything. Is that waiting on the Lord? Is that, is that what I'm talking about in honoring him? I don't think so. I think when we're waiting on the Lord, we're not passive. We're active, but we're active in certain ways. We're active in joyful worship. So part of waiting on the Lord, God has not given you what you want at this point in time. And and it's intense and you're, you're tired of waiting, quite frankly. But you come into this place and you say, through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. Through it all, I can say it is well. And you do so filled with joy, not filled with all the answers, but filled with joy. You are waiting on the Lord in those moments of confessing your heart to him. Waiting on the Lord means you express like real lament and your praying gets intense. You pour out your heart before the Lord. You don't grow distant. How different this story would have been if Saul had said, we've got to pray. 
before we do anything else. Like I'm watching the time and Samuel should have been here and the army is deserting. But for those who are here, can we just get on our face before the Lord? Can we pray together? Waiting on the Lord means we are moving toward intentional community. We're pursuing it. Instead of isolating, running from our brothers and sisters, we're getting open and honest and transparent enough to say, here's the burden I'm bearing and it's really wearing on me and I'm really tired of it. Will you share it? Will you care for me? Will you pray for me? And we begin to share those burdens. When we wait on the Lord, it means we serve others. We don't end up living in that small, selfish world, but we recognize God might use us to serve others. When we're waiting on the Lord, it doesn't mean we aren't doing anything. It it does mean we're making wise decisions, not rash or foolish ones. We're slowing down enough to know, okay, this road, this first step might lead in a direction. I don't want to go that place. I'm going to go a different place. Waiting on the Lord means we cultivate this mindset, this hopeful mindset that God will be faithful. He knows my address. He does not mean to harm me. He will do me good. He will never leave me. We cultivate that and we remind ourselves in our soul of these things. This is impassive. And even though it may not seem to be taking us anywhere, God is doing his good work in our hearts as we are waiting on him. But I have to tell you, so many times that is not the way it works in my heart. I I know I should wait on the Lord, but, but my worship while I'm waiting sometimes isn't that joyful. As a matter of fact, it may be maybe almost non-existent. I just don't feel like it. There are times where my prayer life suffers because here I am waiting and it's like, I prayed yesterday and the day before. I grow into a sense of apathy, maybe even anger at God. Why? Sometimes I, I prefer to run from people rather than opening up and saying, here's where I am. Sometimes I, I feel justified in going, you know what? that's the way it's going to be. If I have to wait, I'm going to get what's mine. I'm going to look out for my own image, my own good. Sometimes I want to just go ahead in decisions without weighing the cost. Sometimes it's easier to live in despair rather than hope. It'll never change. We began this study speaking about our God and the fact that he's slow to anger. And he's slow to anger with impatient people. He was slow to anger with Abraham when Abraham said, God, your timetable's not quite working here. He was slow to anger with Moses when Moses said, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. He's slow to anger with you. He's slow to anger with me. Even in the story of Saul with all of his twists and turns, you see God just like at every corner meeting him with grace, even as Saul is hardening his heart against the Lord, God is moving toward him, just kind of throwing him lifeline after lifeline, saying, you can turn, you don't have to pursue this. God in his infinite mercy is prepared to meet the person who's kind of walked away in their impatience with him. And that may be you today. You walked away from him a while back in your impatience. And I want you to see a God who is slow to anger that says, you can trust me. He takes us back to the place where we can see his goodness and his power and his wisdom. He's honored by our trust. He's honored by our repentance, our our brokenness before him. He's honored when we come home. What will save you and I from our impatience? What will save us from walking down the road that Saul walked down? It'll be a perfect, it'll it'll be a trust in the perfect display of God's wisdom 
and God's goodness, God's power. I don't know any place where that's displayed better than the cross. My heart's just center again on that. We say, I, I trust you because I see the cross. I see what you did for those who you love. You're watching out for me. I see what you did for even my sins of impatience. You paid for them. The path is wide for all of us this morning to seek forgiveness and to renew our trust in him as we kind of play the waiting game. Father, I pray that you would help us. We need your grace. So even in in these quiet moments, here it says we confess our sins of impatience and we, we ask you to give us grace so that we would turn to you and not away from you. Just take a moment and talk to the Lord this morning. Oh Lord, be merciful to us as we're renewing our trust in you. Hear the prayers of each person here. Bring us back to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.